If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Southcrest Baptist Church. Services are 8 a.m., 9.30, and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings and 6 p.m. on Wednesdays. We're located at 3801 South Loop 289 in Lubbock, Texas. If you can't join us in person, be part of our online congregation at southcrestlive.tv to stream our Sunday services live at 9.30 or 11. For more information, visit our website at southcrest.org. This week on Southcrest Live, featuring Dr. David Wilson, we continue our study called Hope, a series in 1 Peter. We're in chapter 3 today, verses 13 through 17. The Apostle Peter, writing to first century Christians who had no legal protections within the Roman Empire, implores them not to lose hope. But maintaining holiness was a tall order for those under persecution. How'd they do it? And how does that apply to us today? Let's listen in on this week's message, Holiness in a Hostile World, from Pastor David Wilson. We are going through the book of 1 Peter, if you'll turn turn to chapter 3. Today we begin a third section. Chapter 1 through verse 12 of chapter 2 talks about our salvation and what God's done for us and our life as a result of that. The beginning in chapter 2, verse 13, all the way through chapter 3, verse 12, you find how the Christian puts that into practice, not only as a citizen, but in our business, in our family, in all of life. And today, beginning in chapter 3, verse 13, we find a third section that deals with suffering and persecution. Not suffering from the standpoint of physical problems, but suffering because you're simply following Jesus. Would you, out of respect for God's word, stand while I read these five verses? Verse 13 says, and who, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us to be people who will follow you no matter what comes our way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Have you ever been in a situation over your head? You didn't know what to do. Applicants to the Canadian, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, take an exam before they become one. And so a would-be constable was given a hypothetical situation. What would you do? He arrives at a gas explosion to find numerous casualties. He notices a drunk driver whom he recognizes as the wife of a senior official. A nearby woman starts to give birth. 
someone is drowning in the canal while a fight breaks out, which could result in the loss of life and much damage. The question is, in a few words, describe what you would do. One applicant faced this with this situation said, I would remove my uniform and mingle with the crowd. <laughs> and a lot of Christians are just that way. When things going, get tough, they, they begin to just be like everyone else. But Peter said, when you follow Christ, you're going to stand out from time to time. And it's going to bring some persecution. It's going to bring some opposition. Now, I want to begin this message with a disclaimer. Namely, that I am not qualified to preach it. Before you point your finger and exclaim, ha, then why are you preaching it? I can also point out that you're not qualified to hear it. (laughs) Several years ago, several years ago, I was headed to Russia with another pastor. The night before we left, he got deathly sick and couldn't go, so I went by myself. And while I was there, a, a group of Christians, Christian leaders, from Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, all of those stand countries, came into Russia because they could come in freely to Russia because they're all Muslim nations. And I spent a week with them around a table. They were wanting me to teach them the Word of God. And I taught them First Peter. But I want to tell you, as we talked about persecution, I felt like... I was trying to tell them something I knew nothing about because they began to share individually the things they had been through simply because they followed Jesus. Some of them had their property seized. Some of them had been tortured. I'm telling you, they all had scars of some kind, whether physical or emotional. Now, here I am, an American pastor that's relatively comfortable preaching the gospel. Here you are, American Christians. We, don't, we have not had our property seized. We've not been tortured for our faith. Nobody has confiscated our stuff or, or taken our families from us or separated us from our families simply because we follow Jesus. We haven't really suffered for our faith. For the first 300 years, Christianity had no protection from the government. The Romans, they didn't have any protection for them. They, for they were concerned it was some new uh, sect or cult. And to become a follower of Jesus meant that you risked everything. Today, you would think it would be different, but you, did you know it's really worse today? Because as of I, the time I speak right now, there are 200 million Christians right now being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. And another 200 to 400 million who face discrimination in some form for being simply a Christian. Peter knew the reality of the sinful society that he was living in and he was encouraging Christians who were being persecuted and scattered abroad and he was trying to tell them to hold on. In fact, he said, you know, if you are persecuted for being good and a follower of Christ, you're still blessed. And then he quotes Isaiah 8, 12, and he said, don't be afraid of those who, who don't be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. In other words, what he was saying is, do not lose hope and don't quit. Now, the day may come 
when you and I are more persecuted and it may happen in our lifetime. A lot of the rights that we have as Christians are being stripped away from us right as under our fa- right under our nose actually. But today I want to talk to you about how to maintain holiness, how to maintain righteousness. And and what I mean by that, you're not going to walk around with a white robe with a pious look on your face all the time. Listen, if you follow Jesus Christ and you got saved, as the choir and orchestra just sang about, then, then there's been a change in your life. And people are going to notice. And when they notice, they're going to begin to ask questions. And if they don't know Christ, some of them may even persecute you or ridicule you or cause some kind of pain and suffering in your life. So how are you going to handle that? Well, it begins with a good foundation. And Peter says, we need to reaffirm our commitment. Now look at verse 15. It says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. In your hearts. Notice there's the heart again. We're always talking about how God changes the heart. Sanctifies, the word hagiazo, comes from the word root hagias, which means holy. Hagiazo means set apart. Pagans used it to set apart their temples for their pagan gods. We've set apart this building to be used for worship and a proclamation of the gospel. But it means to set apart your life to allow Jesus Christ to be the Lord, the master of your life. In fact, the entire letter of Peter talks about being holy. In chapter 1, verse 5, excuse me, verse 15, he says we're to be holy as God is holy. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says we're a holy priesthood. In chapter 2, verse 9, we're a holy nation. And to be holy is to be different. It doesn't mean that you walk around with this better than, I'm better than you attitude. It doesn't matter a holier than thou attitude. It walks around being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. To set apart your life, to enthrone Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. And sometimes when you do that, it makes unchristian, non-Christian people, unbelievers, it makes them uncomfortable. R.C. Sproul wrote a book entitled The Holiness of God, and he observed that unbelievers many times feel uneasy when they're in the presence of an obedient Christian. He observed that the holiness of God reflected in a believer's life makes the non-Christian uncomfortable, and then he told the following true story. Now, this happened back when Gerald Ford was the president, so it's been a few years ago, but he said a pro golfer was going to play a round of golf with Gerald Ford, the president then, another pro golfer by the name of Jack Nicholas, perhaps you've heard of him, and then another preacher, Billy Graham. Can you imagine playing golf with Gerald Ford, Jack Nicholas, and Billy Graham? Well, after the round of golf was played, another pro golfer came up to this golfer who had played with these men and said, hey, what was it like playing with the president and Billy Graham? And the pro golfer said with disgust, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. And with that, he headed for the practice tee, the driving range. His friend followed him, and after the golfer had pounded out his fury on a bucket of golf balls, he said, was Billy Graham a little rough on you out there? And the pro golfer sighed, and with a little embarrassment said, no, He did not even mention religion. 
And R.C. Sproul said, astonishingly, Billy Graham had said nothing about God, Jesus, or religion, yet the pro golfer stomped away after the game, accusing Billy of trying to ram religion down his throat. What happened? He said, the evangelist had so reflected Christ's likeness that his presence made the pro feel uncomfortable. And I wonder, in our lives, do other people know we're even believers in Christ? And you'll notice the phrase, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. The word Lord God in the New King James uh, translation, actually in the Greek text it says, you you sanctify Christ as Lord. The New uh, Living Translation translates it, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Lord has the idea of master. When you receive Christ as your Savior, He's not just your Savior. He's the Lord and the master of your life. Chuck Colson said that if in in this day, if a person stood out in the public arena or in an open forum and said, Jesus is God, that wouldn't have been any problem to the Romans and the Greeks because they had multitudes of gods. So he's just another god but if, if they stood up and said, Jesus is Lord and there is no other, then there was problem. And the problem was that all the Roman Caesars had taken on that status of being the master. And if you had to declare Caesar is Lord, and if Christians would follow the, raw, the Roman laws, they would follow the laws of the land, but they would not declare Caesar as Lord. They would say Jesus is Lord and there is no other. Then they were accused of treason. And then the persecution came. And even today, Christians that live in a totalitarian state face the same kind of persecution. Either Jesus is not just a God. Jesus is God, and he is Lord. He's not just one of them. He's the master. And if we set apart Christ as Lord, it's going to change everything because lordship is the key to godly living. Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? It means he calls the plays in our life. Keith Miller puts it this way, it has never ceased to amaze me that we Christians have developed a kind of selective vision which allows us to be deeply and sincerely involved in worship and church activities and yet almost totally pagan in the day-in, day-out guts of our business lives and never even realize it. If we set apart Christ as Lord, we can rest well at night knowing that nothing else can touch us apart from the sovereignty of God. How do you explain the long line of martyrs, people who've died because of Jesus? How do you explain this? Because they settled it a long time ago in their own hearts that only Christ matters. I want you to ponder those words for a minute. What matters to you today? Oh, I got a lot of matters, right? You got a lot of stuff on your mind, but when it comes right down to it, only Christ matters. 
It doesn't matter how much money you amass in your lifetime. It doesn't matter how big your empire is. It doesn't matter how many friends you have on Facebook. It doesn't matter how many friends you accumulate in life. It doesn't matter about any of the stuff on this earth because this world is passing away. Only thing that really matters is Christ, period. Only Christ matters. We need to hear this, we need to repeat this, we need to preach it, we need to teach it to our children, and we need to never forget it. We will never be ready for suffering or persecution until we make sure in our hearts that only Christ matters. That's what it means to sanctify the Lord God in your heart. He is the most important person, element, whatever you want to call it, God, in my life. But see, a lot of people aren't that way. We, uh, we just sort of have a, an acquaintance with him. Now, when you get this foundation, Peter says, you sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. With that foundation, then you're going to be able, what I'm going to call, you're going to be able to respond with Christ-likeness. Because you're going to respond like Jesus did. Now, he mentioned several things here. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with meekness and fear. Two areas of response. We respond two ways. First of all, we respond verbally in our answer. It's a confession. We're going to talk about it. And I want to break this down even further. Notice three things about this. First of all, be ready. Always be ready, he says. Always be ready to talk about your faith. Why are we so afraid to talk about it? We're not forcing it on anyone. But when people began to notice something that's different about you, and they say, you know, I've noticed that you, you handle adversity a little bit different. And, and there's a foundation or a piece there that even in the midst of your difficulty and suffering, you've got something I don't have. I want to know what it is. You are always to be ready for that. Always be ready manager or the president of a large corporation became a Christian through a, a businessman's Bible study. He was faithful to the Bible study, but he sort of remained a secret Christian. But as he began to grow spiritually, he found it more difficult to hide the fact that he was a Christian. And so his life began to change outwardly. The influence of Christ was affecting his lifestyle. His friends began to ask him questions, so he went back to the Bible study and he said, is it possible to live the Christian life in secret? His friends at the Bible study said, it is impossible for you to have Jesus living within you without some of him leaking out. <laughs> it's going to happen because it, it changes the way you think, the way you respond, the way, the, the way we deal with people. I know none of us are perfect and we're all sinful, but the fact is he begins to change our life. And so always be ready. I'm telling you, you'll be ready to talk about the Texas Tech Red Raiders winning a national championship, won't you? Yeah, won't be a problem for you at all. It's not a problem for you to talk about them being in the Sweet 16, is it? But why is it a problem for us to talk about the greatest thing that's ever happened in our life is when God forgave us of our sins and we got saved. 
always be ready for it. Share your testimony. No one can argue with your testimony. You've got one. How you met Christ, but your life before Christ, how you met him, and your life since then. You've all got one. It also says to be reasonable. This is my term for it. Be ready to give a defense or an answer. Listen to the Greek word, apologia. What's that sound like? Apology. We get our word apologetics. Now, Peter's not saying you go apologize for Christianity. No, the word apologia means to talk off from. It was a verbal legal defense given in a courtroom. Let me put it in West Texas terms. You ought to know whom you've believed in, why you believed, and and what it means to you now, and how somebody else can believe in Jesus Christ. Be willing and be able to explain what you believe and why you believe. Why do you follow Jesus? Somebody asked you that question. Why do you follow Jesus? Well, I was raised a Baptist. That's the wrong answer. Mercy, all Baptists aren't even saved. You follow Jesus because you realize you had no purpose in life. Because your sins had separated you from God. You had no hope in this world. And Jesus saves. And he saves you. It's not hard, people. But it needs to be a reasonable answer when people ask you, and then he, and he also goes on to use the word hope. Now, I want to talk to you about this word hope because our English word doesn't do justice to the Greek word for it. The Greek word is elpis, E-L-P-I-S, and here's what it means. A positive anticipation that you will receive something that's promised. A positive anticipation, it's an anticipation that you will receive something that's promised. Now, all of us have a bucket list. Y'all know what that is? That means you've got some stuff you want to do in this life before you kick the bucket. Now, there's some things I would like to accomplish. There were some things I, places I'd like to go, but I'm going to use one example to give you the difference between hope that you and I use here and the hope in the Bible. I'm an outdoorsman, I like to hunt, I have a hope, I have a desire, I wish, I hope I get to hunt and harvest a trophy bull elk one day. Hadn't happened. Nobody in this room can guarantee me that that will happen. So I hope one day I get to do it, but there's no guarantees about it. But the word elpis in the Bible is a positive anticipation of something that has been promised. I've placed my hope of going to heaven in Jesus because Jesus promised if I follow him, I would have eternal life. So my hope is in the return of Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean I hope he will come. I wish he, you know, I'm I'm dreaming that he might come. No, my hope in him coming is the fact that he said he's coming back and I'm anticipating the promise that he made. You see the difference? 
So when I say my, I hope I go to heaven, it's not because I, I'm wishing or dreaming I'm going to go. My hope is sure because Jesus has already told me I'm going there. And 2 Corinthians 1.10 says, He has delivered us from such deadly perils and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. My hope is not in any person in this room. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame person, but wholly lean, anticipate on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I wish somebody would write a song about that, don't you? But it speaks so much truth because my hope. So always be ready to give a defense or an answer, a reasonable explanation of the anticipation you've been promised, the salvation that you already have and that you're looking for coming But he also says something else. He said, with meekness and fear. I call this be reverent. Meekness. Praetes or praetes. Sometimes translated gentleness. And every time you hear the word meek, you think of some wimp somewhere. You think of some pushover, meek and mild and no backbone. They just, when you hear the word meek, you just sort of slump down, don't you? Let me tell you what meek is in the scripture. It means to tame a wild animal, a horse. A horse is a beautiful animal, strong, fast. You put a bit and a bridle on it tame it, where people can control it and ride it. It's still the same horse, except it's been brought under control. Does that sound like weakness? He's saying, you need to be able to give this defense with control. You need to be gentle, kind, and gracious. It's the opposite of being rude or being insensitive. It means to be winsome and kind and gracious You see, you don't argue people into the kingdom of God. You don't browbeat them into the kingdom of God. You don't harass them into the kingdom of God. You've got to be winsome in order to win some. And on a practical level, it means listening to people, paying attention to them, looking at them when they talk to you and so forth, treating them like people. We are to be witnesses, not prosecutors. And if they're unsaved... We present a loving Savior to them. And doing it, do it in a way, you don't scare people into the kingdom. Years ago, when men still went to the barbershop to get a haircut and a shave, a particular barber who was a strong believer always liked to talk to the people that was in his chair. One day he had a new man come in, and while the man came in and sat down and he gave a haircut, the barber began to talk to somebody else who was waiting and it was time to give this man a shave and he lathered him all up, had that straight razor in his hand and he realized, you know, I haven't talked to this man about Jesus yet. So he turned around with that straight razor in his hand and said, are you prepared to meet God? <laughs> well, the man got up and ran out. 
we don't, we don't treat people that way. We're supposed to be kind and loving and gracious. We can be firm and strong, but we don't have to be ugly about it. An ugly Christian is an oxymoron. A rude Christian, it's a moxymoron. We're not supposed to be rude. And right along that is the word fear. The New King James translated as fear. It's the word phobos. We get our phobias from that. But here it means respect. We don't talk down to people. We're not better than them. We're just a sinner saved by grace trying to lead another sinner to the grace of God. We don't look down on them. So we treat people with respect. So that's all in our answer. But as you know, not only do we answer verbally, but we also show them by our actions. He mentions a good conscience here. Having, verse 16, having a good conscience when they defame you as evildoers. Hmm. Conscience means to know with. It's that internal judge that witnesses to us that enables us to know with either approving our actions or accusing us. It's compared to having a window to let God's light into our life. We have electronic fire alarms around here. They have a light beam in them. If something interrupts that light beam, smoke, dust, Can you imagine dust being around here? Dust, bugs, whatever. If they interrupt that light beam, that alarm's going off. Well, our conscience takes God's word, brings the light in, and it helps us filter everything we do. The problem is that sin defiles it. Let's look at some of the, the biblical terms for it. I just mentioned a defiled conscience. Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. You see, if we persist in our sin, the window gets dirtier. And the less the light shines through and our conscience begins to not being one you can trust. There's also a seared conscience. 1 Timothy 4.1, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking in lies, or speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. R.C. Spruill, I mentioned to you a moment ago, wrote another uh, book entitled The Insanity of Luther. There's actually an article. In that article, here's what he said. Listen to this. When I was a teenager, I was not a Christian. And I grew up before the sexual revolution. I grew up when it was still considered a matter of ethics to keep your virginity until you were married. When I was a young man, I heard an older boy talk about this thrilling experience he had sexually with a girl that lived up the street. My eyes were like saucers. I had never heard anything like this before. He said, try it. You'll like it. So I did, and here's what happened. I came home, went upstairs to the bathroom, and threw up. I was so sick with guilt. But I learned very quickly how to sear my conscience, and I changed. Not my behavior, 
but my ethical standards. I adjusted my ethical standards downward to accommodate my behavior. And I'm not the only man who's ever done that. Most of our ethical theories we develop to excuse ourselves. You know, that's true. We don't like what God's word ever says, so we sort of justify it, get people to vote on it, and it makes it okay. And we say the culture's doing it, everyone's doing it, which is a lie in itself. Everyone's not doing it. But you see, it sears the conscience. And then the scripture also says there's an evil conscience. Hebrews 10, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. You see, conscience depends on the light coming through the window. And as a believer studies the word of God, He better understands the will of God and his conscience becomes more sensitive to right and wrong. All this to say, folks, that as we live for the Lord, our actions are supposed to exhibit that we have sanctified the Lord God in our hearts. We're sanctified. We're supposed to see it in our actions. It means that we live a life that is in keeping with being a Christian, following Christ. A good conscience fortifies us. We know we're right. We know we're doing right. A conscience gives us peace in our hearts. We have peace within. We know that it removes what, the fear of what others may say to us because we know in our hearts that we've done what's right. That's a good conscience. Well, we sanctify the Lord. We're going to let him be the Lord of our life. And then we're going to respond with our answers in our life. But then we remember the consequences. Verse 13 states it's hard for people to harm you if you're doing good. We've already talked about doing good. The Lord leads us to do good. I, I, I read of a lady who picked up her two little boys on the last day of vacation Bible school. She was taking them home in the car and she said, boys, do you want to go to Bible school next summer? And a five-year-old said, I want to go, but I hope it's only four days. It's normally five days. I hope it's only four days. She said, why is that? She said, and the five-year-old said, because it's hard to be good five days in a row. <laughs> Here it says, if you're persecuted, in verse 14, if you're persecuted for righteousness sake, you're blessed. Folks, we're blessed. Do you know that? We're we're blessed people. But why is it we can have 100 good days of health and then we get sick and we say, oh, Lord, why me? Why am I sick? And you didn't thank him for the 100 days you had good. Or you drive for 10 years and you never have an accident and then you have an accident. Lord, why did this happen to me? Well, what about thanking God for the other 10 years you had without an accident? You see, we don't think about those things. We don't stop and say, God, thank you for your blessings. Verse 14 says you don't have to be afraid because the Lord will take care of us. I remind you what verse 12 said last week, how the eyes of the righteous are on the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and he is into our prayers. Remember that? He kneels down and he listens to you. Who wrote this book? Who wrote 1 Peter? This is not a hard question. It's kind of like who's buried in Grant's tomb. The apostle Peter wrote this book wrote this letter. 
I can promise you there was a night in Peter's life that he never forgot. A night when they had arrested Jesus and had him on trial before the Sanhedrin and he was out there in the crowd and three times, three times, they asked him, are you a follower of Jesus? And he let his courage fail. He was so afraid of the consequences of taking a stand with the arrested Jesus and becoming identified as his disciple. So he blatantly denied any relationship with Jesus. He would never forget the shame of that night, especially after Jesus caught his eye that evening. And after the rooster crowed, it broke his heart. That experience may very well have been the background for him writing this. The same guy. But I want to remind you, when Jesus rose again, you never find the apostle afraid again. In fact, in the book of Acts, he's thrown in a jail. He said, throw me in a jail, I'm going to keep preaching. He is martyred for the faith at the end of his life. He never was afraid again because he knew the Lord Jesus would not leave him or forsake him. And folks, our lives are going to be put more and more to the test as Christianity is becoming more and more looked down on on this land. It's up to us to show them what real Christians are. We're not perfect, we're just forgiven. So today, there may be some things in your life where you say, you know what, Lord, I've been treating you more like a, a spoke on a wagon wheel. You've seen those wagon wheels with the spokes. You know, Jesus is just one of the spokes. And then you've got your business life and your family life and so forth. Well, you know what? Jesus needs to be the hub. You don't compartmentalize Jesus in your life. He's the hub so that every part of your life is filtered through him. Maybe there's some areas of your life where you've allowed Jesus to get off the throne of your heart. That's why Peter said, you need to set apart your life for Jesus to be the Lord of your life. There may be some sin you need to confess. 1 John 1, 9, you don't have to confess it to me. You confess it to the Lord. Jesus is the high priest. You confess it to him. He's faithful and just to forgive you. He's the only one that can forgive you. A, a guy here on earth can't grant any forgiveness to you. Sorry, Pope. You can't give forgiveness to people because you're not God. Jesus can forgive you, and he will. Some of you need to receive Christ as your Savior. You, you, you know what religion is, but you've never, you've never put the Lord God in your life, sanctified him in your heart. We talk about asking Jesus to come into our heart, and we get criticized for that. I'm not, I'm not saying that the bodily Jesus lives in your beating heart. I'm talking about your essence, the, the inner being of your life. Lord, I give my life to you as the Lord of my life by faith. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Pastor David. As we found today in 1 Peter 3, holiness in the midst of hostility didn't come easily. 
Peter called Christians to reaffirm their desire to live holy, to always respond to questions regarding their faith with Christ-likeness and a sound answer for their hope, and to remember that even if they were persecuted for their faith, they were still blessed. A good reminder for Christians today who are living in a world becoming more and more hostile toward Christianity. Be sure to join us again for our next installment of Hope, a series on 1 Peter.